podium mic for at least till I get this on. Thanks. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we, we give you thanks and, and honor. Um, this is your day. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember the good that he has done for us. We remember the good gifts that he has done for us in the past. And so we have confidence to ask for good gifts in his name once more. Father, we do pray for uh, the conflict that is raging and escalating in the Middle East. We pray for the families of um, soldiers that have been lost uh, by our nation. We also pray for the families of uh, many who have lost loved ones through the continuing conflict. Though they are far from us, they are no less made in your image. No less in need of a savior, no, need, no less need in redemption, and no greater is their sin than ours. Certainly the blood of Jesus is able to cover them. Father, we uh, are not wise uh, to, to know how the world ought to be ruled. We leave that in your hands. But we pray, Father, we pray, Father, for hope to spring forth from chaos, an eternal hope that is rooted in something that cannot be stolen by war, by famine, by power, because it's held eternally in the hand of our God, in the hand of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that our people are there too. We know that our people, our fellow Christians are in Yemen, are in Iran, are in Iraq, are in Syria. And we know that these conflicts probably come down harder on them. Caught between political forces and religious forces that would rather them not worship the one that we call Lord. And yet needing the protection of those forces to go about their daily lives. We pray, Father, that their hope especially would be in the world that is to come that you are bringing about through the reign of our Savior, Jesus Christ and that they would be emboldened to be faithful witnesses, even as Antipas was, as we read about this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mike, could you get me a glass of water, please? Thanks. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter uh, 2, verse 12 through 17. We're continuing in this study on Revelation. We're just going to work our way through. We're in a section of letters or messages to different churches. And this is the third of seven of those. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. 
But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Micah, that's out of order. You're going to have to use the sink. So what can you not live without? Michael Bolton wondered if it was you. Foreigner said it was you. You too said it was you, but also paradoxically that living with you, with you, was also problematic. Uh, New York Magazine regularly surveys celebrities and mover-shaker types with this question. Uh, Thank you. Nick Offerman requires his uh, Lee Nielsen uh, low-angle block plane. Mario Lopez needs his Burt's Bees lip balm. Ken Jeong can't live without his uh, Coke Zero, cherry particularly. And, and Marie Kondo says that uh, mochi doki matcha mochi ice cream brings her joy. Uh, so just be sure that your pastor researches his sermons. Um, I mean, these are silly examples, but the fact that we have this phrase, that we have this idea of something we can't live without, it speaks to values, doesn't it? There are things that are so deep of a value in this world for us that we would very much despise having to give up that thing, to be without it for any time. And we would fight tooth and nail to keep these things in our lives. And sometimes we might even compromise things that are actually necessary to keep these things in our lives. So what about you? What can you live without? What can't you live without? That's an important question for Christians in particular because we believe in a Savior who gave up everything for us. He gave up his prerogatives as God to become human. And after suffering, he gave up his life on a cross. And he calls men and women to take up their crosses and follow him to lose their lives for his sake. Knowing that in him, they will find true life, eternal life. And the greatest treasure of all, which is Jesus himself. So we are called to relinquish our claim on everything in this world so that we can stake our claim to the one thing that really matters. Christ. And in Revelation 2, 12 and 17, we meet the church in the ancient city of Pergamum struggling with the tension of desiring to follow Christ and desiring to hold on to the world. And the message to Pergamum and the message to us is that we cannot compromise 
our conviction. We cannot compromise our conviction. And so like the other messages to these seven churches, this follows a similar pattern. Jesus is revealed, Jesus knows, Jesus rebukes, and Jesus encourages. And that'll be our broad outline. Jesus reveals himself to the angel in the church of Pergamum in verse 12. And I'll say more about Pergamum in a little bit. But for now, just a reminder that all these churches are in the Roman province of Asia, which is what we would think of as Western Turkey. And this book is being written by John from an island called Patmos, which is off the coast of Turkey, where he is in exile for his Christian faith. And an interesting note, if you map these seven cities, they're on a kind of somewhat circular path, one after another, probably the order in which a letter carrier would have traveled to take this message to each of those cities. And the first of these cities have been all up the coast of Turkey, and this is the furthest north on that list. We're going to turn back to the south here next week. And like to the other cities, Jesus reveals himself to Pergamum with one of the images of him from chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 16, John writes that in his vision of Jesus, he saw that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's a strange picture, isn't it? A sword coming out of a person's mouth. What does that mean? Well, a double-edged sword, or two-edged sword, it's a sword that has a sharp cutting edge on each side. It's more complicated. It's more expensive to manufacture than a single-bladed sword. But for those who had one, they had a great tool, a great weapon. And although many cultures had two-edged swords, I wonder if John maybe saw a vision of the gladius, because that's the sword of the Roman army of the time. And those Roman swords, were, they weren't long, maybe two feet, but they were excellent in close combat. They were generally used for stabbing the enemy, but their dual blades also meant that when they were slashing, a fighter got two attempts, a slash on the upstroke, a slash on the downstroke. It was a formidable weapon. It was designed to quickly take out enemies. And the fact that this sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth symbolizes that it is not Jesus' biceps that will slay his enemies, but his words. The writer of the book called Hebrews describes the word of God this way in chapter 4, verse 12 of that book. He writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, God's own words will destroy a person, spiritually cut them into pieces, leave them forever changed, for good or for bad. For the author of Hebrews and for John, Jesus was the Word of God. 
The author of Hebrews opened his book this way. He wrote, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So the Son, Jesus, is God's perfect and final communication to us. John wrote in his gospel, the very first verse of his record of Jesus' life, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So put together, Jesus is the manifestation of God's Word. He is God's Word, God's message, God's communication in the flesh, and he is able to do spiritual damage. Of all the pictures in Revelation 1, this one might be the most ominous. It suggests judgment, it suggests danger, and no doubt the Pergamene Christians were on edge about what it meant for Jesus to be introduced by that picture to them. But that's how he reveals himself. But as we've seen before, Jesus knows them, and he knows their circumstances. He is aware of what they are going through, and he stands ready to be involved, ready to intervene. He is near. He is not far away. And he sympathizes with them. And that was no doubt comforting because what Jesus describes is upsetting. Jesus says he knows where they live, the throne of Satan. Why would Jesus describe Pergamum as the location of Satan's throne? There's probably actually a lot of reasons for that. But most or all are tied to the religion of that ancient city. Pergamum was a huge religious center of the Roman Empire. It had temples to Athena. It had temples to Zeus. Some speculate that the altar to Zeus, which resembled a giant throne and could be seen from far off, was the reference here, but that might have been built a few decades after this letter. But the Pergamines also had an enormous shrine dedicated to Asclepius, the god of healing. You probably maybe know Asclepius, maybe not by name, but he is that snake wrapped around a rod or a staff, sometimes with wings that's used to depict medical services and health services. And the worship of Asclepius was so much that the city became notorious as a place for healing. And that led it to, uh, within a few decades of this letter, being estimated to have a population of about 200,000 people, which was enormous in the ancient world. It would have been one of the largest cities in the world at that time. And an untold number of visitors would come there for their medical slash religious slash spiritual services. The worship of a snake god who resembled Jewish and Christian depictions of Satan 
had to be part of the connection to John calling it Satan's throne. There was more. Pergamum was also the first city in Asia to become a center for the worship of the Roman emperor. And the pressure to worship the emperor as God or something close to a god would have likely been felt more strongly in Pergamum than anywhere else in the region. And that would have been seen as absolutely satanic by that Christian community. So with these short words, Jesus was letting them know that he knew just how bad things were, probably even worse than they themselves realized. Like them, Christians in all ages have often felt themselves to be located near Satan's throne. Imagine, imagine what it would be like to be a Christian this morning in Pyongyang. Imagine being a faithful Christian in Mexico City or Comina, where Christian ethics are often seen as a threat to the operations and profits of the drug cartels. Imagine trying to worship Jesus in Kabul. If you were in one of these places, you might rightly feel like you are living in the place of Satan's throne. But despite that, Jesus also knows the faithfulness of the church in Pergamum. They cling to his name, meaning his identity and his values, what he stands for, what he represents even in very dark times, they did not abandon Jesus. He reminds them of an event. We don't have any other record of this event, but here. But some persecution broke out that brought the end to the life of a man named Antipas. Antipas gave witness to who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and remained faithful to Jesus, even at the cost of his life. He was a model of the faithful endurance for the Christians living there and for us. And so just like them, we need to remember those who have suffered for the sake of Jesus, that we might be encouraged by their example. It's, it's why we remind ourselves of people like Lottie Moon, whose life likely ended early because her Christian love led her to eat scarcely to give up all of her resources, dropping maybe to as little as 50 pounds. She gave away her resources to her Chinese neighbors who were suffering from the after effects of famine and the overthrow of the Qing dynasty. It's why we remember Jan Hus and John Wycliffe who were both separately burned at the stake for teaching that priests should preach the Bible and avoid sinful lifestyles, and that churches should use the language that the people understood. We remember Polycarp, who we mentioned last week, who stared down the power of the Roman Empire and refused to recant his faith in Christ. Persecution exists on a spectrum, right? Few, if any of us, have uh, felt the sufferings of Polycarp or Jan Hus 
or even Lottie Moon. But few of us, if any of us, have avoided being mocked for following Jesus. Hopefully it was merely mild jesting. Others of us have maybe had lies spoken about us. But for most of us, our our persecution is relatively mild. But times change. Christianity once flourished in Arabia and was completely unknown on the shores of Lake Erie. And those changes happen rapidly. Men like Antipas remind us of what is at stake and help us to steal our faith for times of trouble. But not everything was good in Pergamum. And that leads Jesus to rebuking his church. Jesus says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, to understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to understand the Old Testament scriptures a little bit. And I know that as you read your Bibles in the beginning of the year, and maybe this year you thought to yourself, I'm going to read through my whole Bible in one year. And then you hit Leviticus or you hit Numbers and, and something slows down. And so I hope that you've gotten through Numbers because this is a reference to the book of Numbers. Numbers is a weird book because, yes, it is full of some of the most difficult passages to read in the Bible because they are repetitive and not very exciting, but also some of the most fascinating stories in the Bible, including those stories about this guy named Balaam. In shorthand, after God rescued the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, he led them through the desert of Sinai and then back up north to the land of Canaan, which we call Palestine or Israel today. And as they drew near, they they secured a few military victories along the way, and, and some of the people in that region were getting very nervous about this large group of foreigners in their region. And the king of the land of Moab was one of those individuals who felt threatened. He saw them as a military threat, a, um, a, a religious threat, a, a cultural threat to his reign, his rule in Moab. And so Balak, he was the, the king of Moab, or Balak, he seeks out a well-known oracle or a, a prophet named Balaam. Balak believed that Balaam had the power to pronounce curses and blessings and make them stick, that the gods or God of the universe would would listen to him. And so he hires Balaam to place curses on the Hebrew people so that they would become ineffective and not a threat to Moab. But God prevents Balaam from cursing the Hebrews. In fact, he, he forces Balaam to pronounce blessings on the Hebrews. And the king of Moab, Balak, is furious with Balaam about this. But while the Hebrews were still encamped near Moab, they were seduced to worship the false gods of Moab. 
Some of the Moabite women invited the men to their worship services, and that worship apparently included sexual relations. And that, that was not uncommon in the ancient world, especially in the worship of, of fertility gods, uh, gods of, of crops and agriculture and childbearing. They were often honored with sexual rights, and, and they would employ prostitutes in the temples. That was common. And the passage in Numbers doesn't tell us exactly what rituals they were undergoing or what gods they worshipped during that time, but it was an offense to the true God who had rescued them, who had cared for them, who had provided for them and brought judgment and destruction. On the Hebrews for that sin. Later in the book of Numbers, then, we're told that that came about because Balaam's advice to Balak, after he could not curse the Hebrews, was to entice them to worship the Moabite gods. Maybe the strategy was to make the Hebrews more Moabite than Israelite. Maybe the strategy was to uh, form an alliance with them. Maybe the strategy was simply to make their gods more powerful because they had more worshipers. Or maybe the idea was that they feared the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, and if they could get the Hebrews on bad terms with their God, that would be good for them. But whatever exactly they were thinking, their idea was to entice God's people into false worship. And that becomes what John, uh, Jesus, is saying in Revelation 2 is the teaching of Balaam. Enticing God's people to false worship. So in a similar way, the Christians in Pergamum had some among them who held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans came up earlier in the book, and we kind of put a pin in that because I said it would come up again. Well, here it is. It's, it's come up again. And now we have a little bit better picture of who they are, what they were, what they taught. We have a sense. We don't know the specifics, but the specifics don't matter a lot. We have other passages in the Bible, and we have other passages from early Christian history. Enough to know that the practice of worshiping Greek and Roman gods was a common problem in the early churches. Now, the, the concerns that Jesus mentions here in Revelation 2 are eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. So just like in those more ancient times, the idea of temple prostitution was common in the Greco-Roman religious uh, system. But Sexual immorality it was also a metaphor in the Bible for unfaithfulness to God. The, the, the picture was that God depicts himself as the faithful, loving husband to his people. And his people are called to be a faithful and loving wife. But too often God's people cheat on him with other gods, which makes them spiritual adulteresses. In other words, actual sex isn't the main problem. It's possible, probably likely, that it was a side effect of the main problem. But it wasn't the main problem. The main problem was the idolatry. 
And there were two senses in which Christians might be tempted to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We know that sometimes meat was offered to various gods or goddesses before being sold in the marketplace. Sort of a, a, a way to maybe ensure profits or superstition or good fortune or luck. And in general, Christians thought that wasn't a big deal. They didn't believe that those gods had any power, so it was no concern to eat that meat. But at times, they might choose not to eat that meat if it gave other people the idea that it was okay to worship those gods. So if, if eating that meat would give somebody the impression that it was okay to worship a god who was false, then maybe you would say, no meat today. But otherwise, as long as rules were clear, no problem with eating that meat. But there's another situation, which is when eating meat sacrificed to idols meant participating in a religious meal or a religious celebration. And that seems to be the issue in Pergamum. That these, this meat that's being sacrificed to idols here is meat that is being consumed as part of the worship of Zeus or Asclepius or Athena or the emperor. Those were a different category. And since Pergamum was such a huge religious center, joining in those ceremonies was probably expected. You can imagine it might be really difficult to be seen as a good citizen if you didn't join the celebration of Zeus. You were untrustworthy if you didn't participate in the worship of the emperor. So if you were in that situation, what would you do? Now in your heart, maybe you don't believe Asclepius is a god. But the economy of your city, the economy of your town, depends on that healing business. And failing to show up to that ceremony might be an insult to your family. It might be an insult to your parents. And then there was that guy, Antipas. He was killed for serving Jesus. He was killed maybe for refusing to join in one of those ceremonies. Maybe if he had just been a little bit more flexible, he could have saved his own life. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm sure a lot of those festivities were just fun or more than a little fun, if you know what I mean. So what would you do? The Christians in Pergamum were compromising their conviction. They were compromising their commitment to Jesus Christ. And Christ would not have it. And Christ won't have us compromising our conviction either. Like the Christians in Pergamum, we are faced and we will face temptations to act unethically. We might even be asked to literally engage in false worship. A few years ago, I was at a Hindu wedding ceremony. And part of that ceremony, a a coconut was passed around for everyone to touch, and I, and I felt a sort of instinctual pressure that if everyone's touching the coconut. I needed to touch the coconut, but it struck me as a religious act of 
some kind. And I'm a little confused on the details this many years later, but I think the coconut was either a god or it was a gift to a god or both. Now, the decision to avoid the coconut was easy, but the act of avoiding it was hard. Because it went against my desire to be accommodating, against my desire to be peaceful, to go with the flow, to be polite. I think harder tests are coming for Christians in the West. And I think some of you have already begun to face them. Not, not every religion comes with gods and goddesses. Uh, a religion is just a philosophy with a spiritual component. And this world is full of philosophies with their own orthodoxies and their own rules and their own parameters that we have to follow and get along with. And there is enormous pressure to adopt the philosophies of our culture wherever we are, whatever time we're in, whatever culture we are living in. We are uh, expected to accept the values of that system as if they were unquestionably right and unquestionably good. And sometimes those philosophies are more overtly religious than others, but they still demand allegiance. Today we might be faced by responding to those who call themselves Christians, but attack us as bad Christians for not joining their idolatry an idolatry of sexual ethics, an idolatry of politics, an idolatry of nationalism. The idolatries are endless. They come in so many different forms. And I wonder if the, the Nicolaitans of Pergamum ever accused their fellow Christians of being bad Christians, of not being patriotic enough, of not being loving enough to their neighbors about not getting along and being good citizens. So what will you do? Although it's important that we maintain our conviction, there's another rebuke that's kind of embedded in there that you might not see at first glance. If you, but if you think about it, it becomes clear. And this rebuke, this, this challenge, might be the one that's a little bit harder to obey. Maybe you can say, I, I am not going to join in the false worship just for the momentary joys of this world. That's, that's not me. I'm not going to do that. Good. Amen. And most of the Christians in Pergamum would have agreed with you. But there are still some Christians, or at least people calling themselves Christians, who are doing those things. And some of the Pergamene Christians held to those lies. Some of your fellow Christians hold to those lies. But Jesus doesn't just address the Christians who are acting improperly. He addresses the whole church. And so when he does that, he shows us that the church needed to act. It wasn't like Jesus just separated out the problematic ones and said they need to fix things, they need to repent, Jesus tells the whole church that it needs to repent. And so there is 
an injunction on the church to act as one, to be a whole and to root out the problem. So it wasn't just a matter of saying, don't be a Nicolaitan. Because those who weren't Nicolaitans had a responsibility to deal with this issue also. The church is called to repent, to turn its back on this compromised position. And so if we want to root out the destructive idolatries in our midst, we cannot merely point fingers We must collectively repent. We must own up for what we have allowed to go on in our midst. And that will often come at a very personal cost. Jesus knows that. And so he encourages us. He encourages them. Jesus says to them that they need to repent. If not, that's where that sword is coming. He is coming and he will wage war against the Nicolaitans with the sword of his mouth. We don't want that sword to come down on us. We don't want that sword to come down on those in our midst. Collectively, we need to repent, but the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We've talked about this before. The one who conquers is the one who overcomes, is the one who perseveres in the midst of all of the pressures of this world to compromise faith in Christ and and walk away from him. To conquer or to overcome is to endure in faithfulness to the very end. It's not about picking up a sword. Jesus has the sword and the sword is in his mouth, not his hand. Ours is not a military victory. It's a a victory of faithfulness in the midst of threats to renounce faithfulness. And it will be tough, and it will get tougher at times. But for those who survive, who hold the faith of Jesus like Antipas, Jesus says he'll give some of the hidden manna. What was the manna? Well, as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, God provided for them. It's this, this word manna, it was a Hebrew word that meant something like, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was, but it was a food that God provided for them when they were in the middle of the desert, when they were in the middle of Sinai, when they didn't have anything else to eat, and God made sure that they always had enough. They did not have enough to get rich off of, but they never had so little as to go poor. They had what they needed. Literally, God gave them their daily bread. 
the manna was described as, as a type of bread. And as soon as the Israelites got into the land of promise, as soon as they entered the land of Canaan, the manna stopped being provided by God. But a small amount of it had been stored away in the Ark of the Covenant that was eventually placed in the temple in Jerusalem as a reminder of God's provision for his people. A reminder of the good gifts of heaven. And what Jesus is saying here to these Christians who are feeling this, threaten, uh, this threatening posture from their culture, from their society, maybe even from fellow Christians, to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to Zeus or to Asclepius or to Emperor Trajan. Uh, they are forced or feeling pressured to compromise their conviction. He says, if you hold fast, avoid it. Do not celebrate the worship of other idols. Do not eat the meat sacrificed to foreign gods. And if you hold fast to the end, I'm going to feed you. Meat was a delicacy back then. We, we take meat like it was, it's a, it is the food group, right? It is the prime, the primary. You take the meat and then you figure out what else goes around the meat. Not the case in the first century. Meat was a, a delicacy. Meat was a rarity. It was a special occasion thing. And that plays into this whole idolatry as well. I mean, this, this is a special occasion that you're getting the meat. But Jesus says, oh, you are going without the delicacies of this world. You are going without this meat. You are not being fed this meat. But don't worry I am going to feed you with the food of heaven. I'm going to invite you to a, a, a banquet in the heavenly realm with food that has been uncompromised by sin. I had a, a, my, one of my great friends from college would often dream of the day that he could eat unfallen food, food untainted from sin. For that would be the greatest culinary experience ever. And I think that's what Jesus is offering here. There's nothing that this world has to offer. Even the most delicate meats offered to Zeus cannot compare with the mundane bread that Jesus provides in heaven. And you can taste that meal if you are faithful to the end. He promises them that, and he promises them a white stone. Okay, Jesus, what do I, what do, I do with this stone? With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And, and there's a lot of debate about this, and there's probably a mixture of metaphors that are going on here as often is the case in, in the book of Revelation. But two really are striking. Uh, often a, a white stone as opposed to a black stone could be a method of acquittal, of, of escaping the consequences of a crime. It was sort of a not guilty verdict. The white stone represented a not guilty verdict. But also special stones 
pretty stones, white stones, might be used as something like a ticket or an invitation, a marker that you have entrance into this event, this party, this social gathering. Jesus is saying, you have permission to enter. You have your ID to get in to the banquet of the kingdom of the Christ. The name that's written on the stone that no one knows except the one who received it. It's not knowing probably in the sense of like intellectual knowing like, I've got this, what's on your stone? Can't tell you. It's just for me. It's not the idea. It's, it's, it's more the knowing of, of understanding and, and recognizing and, and realizing the significance and the importance of it. It's probably connected very closely to the name of Jesus. A, a simple gloss. You know what's going to be written on that stone? Christian. The one who has surrendered everything to follow Christ. Who knows what that cost means. Who knows what it meant to take up their cross and follow him. They knew what that name Christ stood for. What it really meant to pray in Jesus' name. That it wasn't just something they tacked on to the end of a prayer. But it was something that meant I am aligning myself with the one who gave up everything to save me. To save his church. That is what I'm all about. Because he gave up everything for his church. I give up everything to be with him. Christian. And if you have that stone, and that's a stone that you can't write yourself. You can't just pick one up on the beach and carve your name into it, carve Christian onto it. It has to be given to you by Jesus. But if you have a white stone from Jesus that bears his mark, that bears his imprint, that says, you know what it means to be mine, then all of the joys that this world had to offer you, all the joys, all the freedoms from persecution, the freedoms from insults, the freedoms from pain and suffering that the world promised you but never delivers on, really, at the end of the day, all your sacrifice of those things was worth it because what he offers you now and in the age to come is so much more. What are you living for? What can't you live for that? What can't you live without? For the Christian, there is only one answer. Jesus. The old song says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. As Martin Luther taught us, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abide this still. His kingdom is eternal. 
What can't you live without? And if the answer is anything but Jesus, would you consider the possibility that there is something worth more than anything this life has to offer? And if that's true, it's worth everything you have. Let's pray. Father, may we know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and know him all the more. When we are tempted to cling to the goods of this world, when we are tempted to take its pleasures and call them our own, when we are tempted to avoid the pains of this world, by hiding the name of Jesus, by compromising our conviction about him we call the Christ, would you strengthen us by your spirit to hold fast the faith of Jesus until the very end. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to repent of the ways in which we have compromised in our conviction, whether us personally or whether as a part of our church, your church. And we pray that those who have so far been captivated by what the world has to offer them, the accumulation of riches, the celebrations of their culture, the demands of families and governments, neighbors and co-workers. We pray, Father, for those who are not Christians, though they call themselves that, or maybe they don't, but that they would have their hearts broken by the sword of Jesus' mouth, and they might give him their praise. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing our worship to him.